All right, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, we have our usual panel of COVID-19 experts from the Department of Health, but we're also joined today with a, by a special guest, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. We'd like to offer some opening remarks. So with that, I'll turn it over to the governor. Oh, thank you, everyone. Um, I can't believe that I'm identified, uh, Dr. Grace, as the special guest uh, for your weekly briefings, but uh, it is uh, a good place for me uh, to uh, thank both uh, Dr. Grace for his leadership, uh, the uh, Matt, the medical advisory team, and so many others who continue to fight COVID, and most importantly, uh, and the reason I'm back on this week and hope to spend uh, some more time with New Mexicans and Dr. Grace and the panel about giving you COVID updates is that uh, every New Mexican, I am sure, uh, every American, everyone around the globe uh, wants desperately to hear that the pandemic is over, that we have conquered COVID, that vaccines, which are... Uh, uh, incredibly effective and safe and are the way out of this pandemic. But we're not quite there because unvaccinated populations around the globe continue to spread the virus and create risks for all of us, including to some degree uh, individuals who are vaccinated. And I wanted to come and talk to you today to highlight that uh, 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 several things. One, Managing through the pandemic is, in fact, conquering COVID to the highest degree possible. And we're going to have to keep doing that, and we have been doing that. I want to thank every business, every New Mexican, every public worker for adhering to the indoor mask mandates and to really working diligently uh, to make sure that we do everything in our power to minimize and blunt spread. That's critically important. Two, I want to thank everyone again for working so diligently in getting vaccinated and to getting your now booster shots. And I want to talk a little bit about that before I tell you about the cases. And you'll get a slide from Dr. Scrace uh, so that you don't have to um, remember everything that I say about our current case count for today. Uh, the modeling team, uh, which, as you know, uh, includes incredible researchers and statisticians from both our national labs, uh, we look at what the trends are projecting, what the kind of rate of infection issues are. We follow, of course, the science at CDC and their data, uh, look uh, specifically and carefully at what's going on in terms of authorizations with the FDA. And I participate weekly with the White House uh, in our COVID updates and our uh, conversations across the country to look at best practices and strategies to make sure that all of us are effectively managing COVID. So what's going on in New Mexico and what's going on, frankly, uh, in the West where we're seeing cases spike and in our own state, you know, we had about a thousand cases yesterday and you're going to hear that we have 1,530 cases today. So we're seeing way too high a number of cases and we're seeing these kinds of spikes that indicate that COVID is still spreading around the state, which leads to far too many hospitalizations, far too many workers unable to go to work 
and far too many students who can't be in the classroom, right, during their isolation period. All of these are dramatic issues we have to get addressed. Here's what we believe is going on, which is why I wanted to talk to every New Mexican directly. We've long believed that these vaccines are predominantly effective in terms of building immunity for about six months. Now we, we, we do that, we have this information based on years of data for vaccines for viruses like flu, understanding many other novel viruses COVID remembers brand new, so we're learning about it. But this body of work has, is always ongoing in this country and frankly in the states. Remember that New Mexico led the nation in getting vaccines into the arms of New Mexicans. All those eligible groups, starting with hospital workers early in the pandemic when vaccines were approved, the Pfizer vaccine in particular, um, uh, almost a year ago. And we were very effective, and so were New Mexicans, at doing everything in their part to get fully vaccinated. That was two doses if it was Pfizer or Moderna, one dose if it was Johnson & Johnson. Because we were so early, that six months where immunity starts to wane means that we're more susceptible, potentially, that, right, to that virus as it's moving, particularly Delta, because it's a much more infectious variant of COVID-19. And the more often this virus circulates, not just here, but all over America and all around the globe, the more these issues will continue to be a challenge for all of us. So here's what I wanna talk about. I want folks to get their boosters and I wanna really highlight, and you'll see it in the slide, you know, we're in uh, the top states in the nation for getting our kids vaccinated, for getting people to get boosters, but we can do better. Until we get to that 80, 85, 90% of individuals uh, who are eligible for a booster, we're gonna see these risks where we have breakthrough infections. And again, breakthrough infections to the fully vaccinated often mean you're either asymptomatic or mild symptoms that you don't go to the hospital. And then most importantly, we don't lose our lives to this deadly virus. But moving it around because we've lost immunity means that unvaccinated or younger populations that are not yet eligible for a vaccine, those under five, it means that we continue to put them at risk and we're continuing to move this virus in ways that are continuing to literally crush our healthcare system. So in this particular briefing, I really wanted to highlight that in spite of our incredible work and the leadership of the Department of Health and your efforts to get your families fully vaccinated, we have to do more. Can't just be in the top five, be way above the national average for vaccine penetration. You know, we have to lead the nation because we owe it to our healthcare workers. We owe it to our families. We owe it to our communities. We owe it to our businesses. And most importantly, we owe it to the folks who can't be vaccinated because either they're too young and don't meet the criteria or 
they have underlying conditions, those are rare, but there are some that don't allow them to be vaccinated against COVID-19. We think that moving around, that tourism, that all of these access points and the fact that it's colder weather is pushing us all more indoors, remember, create that kind of high risk ecosystem. It's why New Mexico was the third state in the nation to determine that while the CDC is debating when immunity wanes and to what degree that it wanes, that because we are making the booster shots available for an older population, but no real prohibition against giving it to everyone. We're erring on the side of caution by presumptively leaning in, right? By making sure that all of us who can be vaccinated with a booster should do so. Because we know that vaccinations are the most effective tool to both blunting the spread of the virus into protecting ourselves and our families. And so we are analyzing what we can do to create those incentives and potentially mandates for making sure that people are fully vaccinated, which means three vaccines. And I think as New Mexicans and the modeling team at Dr. Scrace and the CDC will certainly provide that guidance in the months to come, uh, where are we in terms of, right, both antiviral treatments that we think are coming, Pfizer's already uh, having that evaluated by the FDA, but also what kind of a vaccine regimen should we be expecting over the next 24 or 36 months? The more we know about what to expect, the better we're going to be at blunting the spread of the virus, protecting our healthcare workers and protecting each other. And it's also a reminder, masks, do work to prevent the spread to the highest degree possible. For those of you who can get surgical grade masks or N95s, KN95s, uh, not the fitted masks that require a fitting, but anything that you can do that builds those protections, while cloth masks do a ton to prevent or eliminate to some degree, right? Uh, the ability of that virus to spread through that material on our face from our nose and mouth. Um, they, they aren't as effective as surgical masks and KN95s. And I wanna just recommend uh, that you think about if you can't access those, and I'm gonna add direct and ask the state how we can provide better, cheaper, potentially even free access to those kinds of supplies so that all of us continue to do our fair share. And my last message, as the holidays are quickly approaching, um, all of us, myself included, are looking forward to spending time with our families. Um, and uh, I'm gonna ask you uh, to do the same. Think about smaller gatherings. If you're in a warmer community, Think about being outside for Thanksgiving. If you can wear your masks except for not eating, do that. I do that. And um, I think it's meaningful in terms of just making sure that we have good public health practices. Um, they're really valuable. And I've got a grandchild who's too young to be vaccinated. So I feel like I'm doing everything in my power to protect him 
in those spaces. And of course, uh, in my family, you know, we require that before anyone can come into an indoor gathering that we're all vaccinated. Anything that we do stops the spread, that blunts the ability of this virus to wreak havoc in our healthcare system and in our communities means a quicker access point to more normalcy, right? More freedoms away from this virus and better opportunities for everyone, including, and I want to really highlight this, schools and businesses deserve the ability to know that every single week they aren't going to have one of their students or one of their workers out in an isolation. So it's not just that, and that's critically important, that vaccines will save your life, that vaccines will mitigate symptoms if you get, if, if you get a breakthrough infection, and then vaccines help blunt the spread. But if you have a breakthrough infection, because we have too much virus moving around and the rate of infection is too high, it means that you can't go to work, can't take care of your kids, can't be a nurse in a hospital. So I just really want us all to sort of take a step back and, and recognize that and continue to follow these important, vital public health practices. And last, but we're going to always be a leader in per capita testing in the country. And I know that it can feel really scary when you see these cases be so high. It's not good news. But we also test. And a lot of states have really waned in their per capita percentage of testing. We're not going to do that. We want to know. We want to do something about it. We want to help you isolate, safeguard your family, your community, your coworkers. And so we're going to continue to do that. And Dr. Grace is going to speak about where you can expect clinics and what else they are doing to provide as much support, guidance, and sound evidence-based public health policies that really make a difference. I apologize to all the New Mexicans who uh, expect uh, me to be on till the very end so that I can answer questions. Uh, we rearranged the day in order for me to say thank you to Dr. Grace, Department of Health, all of our healthcare workers, and every New Mexican who's been vaccinated, who's gotten a booster, who's continuing to support us, the National Guard, all of our federal workers and FEMA, everyone, and our hospital and healthcare workers. Uh, who are exhausted and continue to save our lives uh, and treat us and serve us in the most compassionate way as we all fight against this pandemic together. As I join future uh, COVID briefings, I promise to stay to the very end uh, and engage in all of the question and answers. Uh, that's important to me as governor, it's important to us as a team, and it's important to us to have a relationship with the media so that we are creating space for people to have a dialogue about any number of issues uh, surrounding COVID and questions about what's occurring, what's not occurring, and what we can do better about it. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Grace, for having me today. Thank you to the media for allowing me to make uh, these uh, comments and uh, for our plea to do even more uh, around getting fully vaccinated in the state of New Mexico. Uh, be safe, everyone. 
And thank you all very much. Thanks very much for being here, Governor. Uh, I'm having early pandemic deja vu, seeing you here and having you at our uh, press conference. And you're welcome back anytime for as long as you want. And you can even just pop in right in the middle. You're always welcome here. I might just surprise you, Dr. Grace, because I know how you like yeah. that. I do. I do. I know. So, you uh, do. Uh, anything else you'd like to say before you uh, take off, Governor? Uh, no, just that these are serious numbers. We're aware. We're seeing these increases. Dr. Grace, I know you're going to talk about it. It's happening around the globe. Uh, and you've referred to New Mexico as kind of the tip of the spear because of potentially waning immunity and other factors uh, and uh, that folks want to come to New Mexico and so tourists are coming here. And it just means that we are continuing to mix populations together. And of course, uh, the uh, colder months are here and we're driving ourselves back indoors, of course. Uh, and so all of those factors play a role. Uh, and it just means that we have to triple our efforts right, at uh, fighting COVID, because really uh, that's what makes the difference. And again, to reiterate what you always say, because you're right, and I appreciate that, that the way through the pandemic is through vaccinations. And we're going to continue to do that, and we're going to continue to work on getting those who are still yet unvaccinated uh, to reconsider and to get vaccinated. You will make us all safer, and you will protect yourselves and your healthcare community. So thank you very much, Dr. Scruggs. Thank you, Governor. I think Brianna or whoever, we can bring up the first slide and talk about today's cases, and then I'll turn it over to the team. We have a lot to talk about today. There's a lot going on here in New Mexico. If we could put that in slide, there we go. Uh, 1,530 cases today, again, uh, quite high. Um, and you can see uh, we're approaching the 300,000 case mark, and we've last week we passed the 14% of our population having had a test positive uh, COVID infection. We have 539 people in the hospital, which is the highest we've had since uh, January of last year. Uh, you can see the total number of hospitalizations, and about one out of every 16 people who gets COVID ends up in the hospital little higher for unvaccinated people, a little lower hospitalization rate for vaccinated people. And every day, um, this is the worst part of my day is reviewing uh, the deaths. We had another 12 deaths. 12 seems to be a fairly consistent number. Uh, we've had over 5,000, over 5,200 since March of 2020. And about 1.7% of people who contract COVID will uh, succumb to it. And again, 5,215 people, uh, every one of those a meaningful life, an important life, and dozen or more people who know or are in the family with each one of those people experiencing their loss. So uh, in a minute, uh, we're gonna turn it over to Laura, uh, the vaccine uh, czar uh, for New Mexico. We've got a lot of exciting things to talk about with vaccines, two new opportunities to vaccinate uh, individuals and great, really excellent first and second week success in those. So Laura, take it away. Okay, great, thank you so much. Um, so hi everybody. Uh, so once again, you know, as usual, full vaccination is still New Mexico's first priority and so grateful to the governor for sharing how important that is. Uh, next slide. 
In New Mexico, it's pretty exciting that, you know, every week we're vaccinating more and more people. If you look at the whole of New Mexico, the whole population, 61.4% of all New Mexicans are vaccinated. However, you know, we are having a surge because 38.6% of people are still remain unvaccinated. Um, it's exciting to look at the fact that 73.7% of New Mexicans 18 and over are fully vaccinated. 55.2% of New Mexicans 12 to 17 years old are fully vaccinated. And we haven't had any um, young five to 11 year olds fully vaccinated yet, but they are partially vaccinated. So uh, same thing for the partially vaccination rate, 70.7% um, 70, 70 of all New Mexicans uh, partially vaccinated, 29.3 unvaccinated. Um, and so you can see the numbers down here, I'm not gonna go through all of them, but also we've done almost 200, over 274,000 New Mexicans 18 and over are now fully boosted. So that's really exciting too. And uh, thanks to the governor for encouraging people to get um, vaccinated for their boosters. Next slide. Um, this is really exciting as well, um, as uh, Secretary Scrace was sharing, but we are now at over 65,000 doses per week. If you look at the graph, that's more than we've had since May. So that's really exciting. Everyone's getting up and ready to get vaccinated. So go New Mexico. Uh, next slide. Um, also, we're seeing in our Hispanic and Latino populations, um, the most increases we've had in people with one, one dose or more, um, we have had an in most increase for the past two months. Um, so you'll see in the graph that on October 8th, there was a, a higher percentage. That's just because we had a lot of extra data being put into our system. But yeah, it's very exciting. Um, for next slide, for African-American, we are seeing that same increase. In fact, a little bit more increase in the past week, um, more than we've had in the past two months. So um, we're really excited about that. We wanna make sure every population gets vaccinated in New Mexico. Next slide. Um, you can still easily make a vaccine appointment today. We've been really ramping up. Our team has been working so hard. Thank you to our whole DOH team, working hard to get those vaccine appointments available and also all the providers out there who are also putting out um, appointments. COVID appointments are available at vaccinenewmexico.org as usual. You can schedule an appointment also with your primary care provider or your pharmacy. And remember to get that flu shot at the same time. And if you have any questions, once again, ask your provider, um, ask a trusted friend about your, um, about your vaccine. Uh, next slide. Um, also, once again, just letting people know that the call center is here for New Mexicans without access to the website. And once again, it's open 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. and option three or nine takes callers uh, directly to a Spanish speaker. Next slide. Um, so we have some exciting updates about the booster dose administration in New Mexico, like um, Governor was sharing. Next slide. Um, so the CDC has booster recommendations that you're eligible for a booster specifically in yellow. We're going to highlight uh, those who are 18 and over who work or live in high risk settings for Pfizer and Moderna and J&J &J is just you're eligible for a booster if you're 18 years or older. So let's talk about high risk settings. Um, in the next slide, you'll see that New Mexico is a high risk setting right now. 
Um, if you look at the total cases per 100,000, what we are working towards is having 10 or less cases. Um, that means if you have more than 10 cases, you're in an area of substantial spread, you're at risk for getting COVID. And so you can see almost all of New Mexico is a high risk setting right now. Um, because of that, New Mexico has joined eight other states in opening boosters to all people over the age of 18. And we're very grateful for um, our governor for actually putting a declaration to um, allow all 18 and over people um, to get a booster because of being in a high risk setting. So this is really the time to get your boosters um, if you haven't gotten one yet. Next slide. Um, you can see that we are progressing every week on the booster doses. Over 292,000 doses have now been administered between August 1st and now. And we're actually currently New Mexico, New Mexico is on one of the top states that have been vaccinated. And I think we're like number 13. So great job, everybody. Next slide. Um, Booster doses, I know that some people may have had some trouble getting booster appointments, but we, like I said, every day we're getting more and more appointments available. We thank all the providers out there, our Department of Health team, everybody who's come out there to get more appointments. We have um, right now 35,530 appointments open. Um, and then there are also other appointments and walk-ins available statewide you can visit vaccinenewmexico.org or vaccines.gov to find a location near you. Next slide. And uh, this just goes to show like there are just so many vaccine sites available. Once again, um, we are trying to open up more and more all the time. Um, there's over 3,011 um, vaccine sites currently scheduled to operate. So between today and, and um, December 15th. So you may not get one today, but there are slots available. And like I said, you can even like go to your local pharmacy if you're having trouble getting on the website, um, there will be appointments available eventually. So um, let's, let's talk about vaccines for children. Um, great job on the five to 11 year old vaccines. Next slide. Um, the five to 11 vaccines are taking off really quickly. Um, as a Department of Health, our first week goal, we were hoping for at least 9,443 children to get vaccinated. But our first actual week, we had 10,022 um, above our target. So we're doing really well. Thank you, everybody, all the parents out there taking their kids to get vaccinated. Thank you so much, because that's how we protect our kids. Next slide. Um, we're also, you know, for those of you, once again, looking for appointments, we're adding more appointments to five to 11 year olds daily. There's now 11,020 um, open appointments. Um, so about 33% of the appointments that are available are still open. And the vaccines continue to be regularly delivered to New Mexico and appointments are added each day. So once again, we appreciate your patience as new doses arrive. But you can see here that um, there's a lot of doses that are available on this slide is appointment schedules are the dark ones and then the lighter ones are available appointments. 
Now you can see going into December, it looks like we don't have any appointments, but that's just because providers schedule their appointments as time goes on. So we're really waiting to, um, you know, as, as the providers put more on, you'll see more availability. Next slide. Uh, okay, and then once again, there are tons of vaccine sites as well. Um, between today and December 15th, there's 776 vaccine sites for five to 11 year olds scheduled to operate. And you can visit vaccinenewmexico.org slash kids, or also look on vaccines.gov to find a, a vaccine site near you. So it looks, it looks like a lot. It's because there are a lot of vaccines. So thank you. Next slide. Um, so just wanted to share a little bit for parents and children, the step-by-step -step vaccine process as you're going through the vaccine um, process for kids. Next slide. Um, you know, one of the things that people are always asking is how do I schedule my kids' appointments? So it's, you know, our team, thank you so much to the team that's working on the app. They recently updated it to make it easier to get onto the app. So go to vaccinenewmexico.org slash kids. You can um, you know, manage your kids' appointments there and vaccines are free and you don't need insurance and you can get it um, in so many places right now in New Mexico. Next slide. Um, I know a lot of kids are out there also wondering like, you know, um, where do they put the shot when you get the, the vaccine shot? And just to share a little bit about what that's like, um, if you're a kid out there and you're waiting to get your shot, um, someone will clean your upper arm with an alcohol pad. It feels a little bit cool. And this is like where you would normally get your flu vaccine or any of the other 16 shots that you're required for school. And um, it might be a little prick. It, it hurts a little bit, but not for long. And just so parents know and kids know too, any side effects for young children are even milder than older children just because it's a third of the dose. Uh, next slide. And, um, you know, a lot of kids out there, you know, sometimes I didn't like to get a shot when I was little. I know my kids didn't like to get, get a shot. But if you're a kid out there, um, you can get ready for your shot by, you know, bringing a friend or a sibling or family member to talk to or just like joke around with while you're getting your vaccines. You don't feel it as much or bring a favorite stuffed animal or a toy to, to take with you when you get your shot. Um, next slide. So uh, kids out there, if uh, you're ready to get your shot, that'll be great, especially as holidays are coming around. Um, I know that a lot of parents are looking to travel or visit friends during the holidays. Um, getting your child vaccinated will help with uh, getting them fully protected. So just remember that um, it's two doses, three weeks apart for the Pfizer uh, child dose and that it takes um, two weeks for the vaccine to work after your second dose, and then you will be fully vaccinated. So that might be important for the uh, winter holidays, get your first shot as soon as they can so they can be protected for the holiday season. And uh, next slide. And just a little reminder of why uh, it's great to get a vaccine for your child. It's 91% effective at protecting preventing COVID. And you know, for kids out there, I know we do this um, as a community. So we, we don't get, end up getting really sick or passing it on to someone else who could get really sick. And it's just our little part to do to try to help end the pandemic. So uh, thank you so much. And um, I'm gonna pass it over to my uh, amazing colleague, uh, Dr. Christine Ross. Okay.
Okay, thank you so much, Laura. Uh, it's my pleasure to, uh, to be here today to provide a COVID-19 epidemiology update. And I just wanted to start off by saying, as, as I highlighted last week, and as we're all well aware, um, we continue to battle the SARS-CoV-2 virus as the, the global pandemic continues. Um, similar to what we mentioned last week, some parts of the world are seeing some dramatic surges in activity um, with the world's epicenter of, of activity right now being in Europe, uh, Eastern, uh, and now uh, even Western Europe. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. So the U.S. has documented nearly 47 million cases, and importantly, we've been experiencing declines in our national case rates after a surge in cases, which started in uh, July. And as we've uh, discussed here, uh, we believe this was fueled by this very highly uh, contagious uh, Delta variant. So many locations in the United States that were hit quite hard a few months ago are now seeing a reprieve, as you can see by the light colors on the map on the left-hand side of the slide. And so these lighter colors uh, or lower case rates are primarily in the southern part of the country. But again, uh, it's important not to forget uh, they also saw a real surge in activity, um, um, but uh, happened to peak um, earlier and have, are now declined and seeing lower rates. So the graph on the right hand uh, uh, side of the slide shows the seven day moving average of daily new cases in the United States. And so again, we've been seeing uh, decreasing case rates nationally, uh, but now we've had, we've plateaued, and this is a rather high plateau as compared to our pre-Delta numbers. If you just follow that red line out, uh, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Um, unfortunately, uh, we've seen a 9.8% uh, increase in new cases of this seven-day moving average as of November 15th. So the point of this is, is that clearly as a nation, we in fact uh, may be trending in the wrong direction. So we're going to need to follow this uh, closely. And just as a comment on this, I would say we know that this the Delta variant uh, of the virus seems to find any breaches in protection. So anyone who is not immunologically protected uh, continues to be at risk for an infection. And, and um, these populations continue to, to fuel surges of activity of, of the virus. Let's move on to the next slide. Um, I do want to mention some reasons for optimism. We have come a really long way in this pandemic. Um, obviously, we have highly effective medical countermeasures now, which and what I mean by that is, is uh, vaccines. Uh, we also have monoclonal antibody treatment and other exciting things coming down the pike, which um, uh, uh, Dr. Scrace will be talking about later. But one thing I want to mention is it's really important to, to follow not only cases, but we look at hospitalizations, we look at deaths as well. And it's really interesting um, when you compare um, globally, you compare countries uh, with high vaccine coverage to countries with low vaccine coverage uh, who may be experiencing surges in cases and, and look at the difference in death rate. 
And you can see that the vaccines appear to be preventing large numbers of deaths. So the graph on the left-hand side is our, our national trend. So this is our current seven-day moving average of new deaths. And what you see in the middle of the slide is um, the winter surge. And you can see that's quite uh, a bit larger uh, than what we're seeing on the right-hand uh, side of the slide, which what we're calling is our delta surge. So what's the difference there? Well, the difference is uh, obviously we've been rolling out vaccines as, as, as swiftly as possible. And, we, and this is some clear evidence that vaccines are preventing a large number of deaths. The right-hand side of the slide, I used um, the CDC COVID tracker just to take a quick look and to compare death rates per 100,000 population across a few states. Now, I want to say this is really complicated when we try to compare things head to head um, without more under, you know, without really a good understanding of how these states track metrics, uh, without more understanding of the population characteristics that might influence these rates. So I want to say it's, 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 um, it's quite complicated, but if you just take a quick look here, it is a little bit interesting. Um, um, what you see are uh, Texas and Louisiana uh, with much higher uh, death rates when you when you compare to New Mexico and Arizona, and there's quite a difference in the vaccine coverage uh, in the states uh, uh, where you see the higher death rates as compared to states. Uh, with lower death rates. Again, these comparisons are not always straightforward and there can be a number of factors affecting the rates. And when we, you know, when we try to unpack this, again, it can be really complicated, but these are some of the metrics that we're watching really closely. And I just want to um, raise this as a point to say, you really, um, when looking at data related to COVID, we just don't, we don't wanna focus um, primarily on cases. We wanna understand what's happening after the vaccine rollout, what's happening with uh, serious complications like uh, hospitalizations, severe outcomes and death. And we see uh, globally that the vaccines are making uh, quite a difference. So next slide. And then going into New Mexico data, everyone's familiar with this. This is uh, our statewide epi curve where we plot the daily cases over time with the black line depicting the seven day moving average. Again, the big mountain in the middle of the slide is our winter surge. And then the right hand uh, side of the slide shows our current seven day moving average. You see where we took off uh, once the Delta variant became predominant in the state uh, in July. Um, you saw a surge in cases uh, we we started to trend down a little bit, hit a plateau, a very high plateau, and now are, are trending um, in a worrisome direction. Uh, next slide. And again, I just want to mention, so um, 
we, we conduct genomic surveillance in, in New Mexico, and we do this, um, uh, I'd say the epicenter of this work is our state lab. So I always wanna acknowledge them and say kudos to them. It's fantastic work. Um, they do the work and then our epi team takes the data and, is, and produces this, this nice graph that you see. The take home message is, Delta continues to be the predominant variant that we sequence in the, in the state. It continues to be the predominant variant causing surges in the United States and also globally. So we're watching this very carefully for any emerging uh, um, a variant of concern, uh, but Delta has, uh, it continues to be dominant and continues to, to fuel surges. We know that Delta is very different uh, from uh, Alpha or the historical uh, ancestral uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus um, in that it's much more contagious. So it has some advantages where it is able to uh, spread at least two to four times as contagious as the uh, ancestral strain. Uh, next slide. So we wanted to just take a minute to highlight the rising incidence among um, children, school-aged children predominantly uh, in New Mexico. Uh, so the dark blue line that you see is going to be um, a comparison for you. This is 18 and over. And then you can see uh, the uh, case rates or the cases per 100,000 population by age group. We break this down to uh, by zero to four, five to 11 and 12 to 17. And you can see the, um, the 5 to 11 and 12 to 17s um, are, are have higher case rates than 18 and over. And so over the course of the pandemic, school-aged children um, have accounted, um, it, it had been averaging around 15% of our total cases, uh, 10 to 15%. Uh, now it's up to 17% of our total cases or, or cumulative cases over the entire pandemic. But if you look over just the last week, uh, school age or pediatric uh, cases accounted for over 25% of our cases. Um, and so we know the difference here uh, from the winter where um, uh, we were doing remote learning, uh, predominantly remote, some hybrid, and then we do, we now have kids back in school. So obviously there's more opportunities for transmission events to occur. And uh, the other new thing is Delta uh, again, which we've already discussed. The other thing is there's been quite some time where uh, children have not been eligible for vaccine and that has changed. So we really hope to see um, children, um, we hope to see that uh, parents take advantage of the vaccine, which is now available. I won't go into those details since uh, Dr. Petahone already reviewed those. Um, but I just want to emphasize, we know that children are at low risk for serious outcomes, but they are not at zero risk. So this, the best way to protect your children, it, we, these vaccines are safe and highly effective. This is the best tool to protect your kids and to prevent onward transmission of the virus and to help us end the pandemic. Let's go ahead and move to the next slide. 
And so we wanted to provide some situational awareness. I won't go into um, too many details other than just we are going to uh, break down that statewide epi curve. Um, we're going to break this down by uh, what we call by health region. So this is the New Mexico metro region, uh, which has uh, one, two, three, four counties. And again, this is uh, um, uh, one that we watch closely since it's heavily populated. And you can see that the metro region, you follow the black dotted line, the seven day moving average, you see that the, that the metro region uh, took off as we all, as all, as, as all locales with the Delta variant um, hit a plateau for some time and now absolutely going in the wrong direction, very concerning, rapidly rising incidents um, that we're, we're, we're really want to provide the situational awareness to everyone so that you can protect yourself and um, and protecting yourself means being aware of the level of disease activity that's occurring in your community so next slide this is the northeast region this is a diff a, a, a different um, axis or scale so this is not as as high uh, um, we're not seeing the the volume of cases or the same case rates at the metro region uh, but we want to show you the trend here where you see the northeast region is also trending upward next slide and this is the northwest region which uh, we have been uh, talking about for some time now because it's extremely worrisome and uh, of course these these uh, graphs these are these are not just numbers these are people um, these and these these people are are you know our friends our family our colleagues and um, what's happening in the northwest you can follow this line and see this really dramatic rise uh, in case rates which have um, overloaded uh, the hospital system there in the region. And I think uh, Dr. Scrace will talk more about that. Uh, we did give you an update last week as well, um, but very, very concerning. Uh, next slide. Uh, this is the southeast region of the state. And again, we do this again, there are some differences in these curves and we're working hard to understand um, some of these variables that that, um, you know, again, this is this is a novel virus and there are many things that we are still learning. You see this rapid, rapid rise in the southeast, very sharp rise, rapid decline, um, look like we were going back down uh, um, in, in, absolutely in the right direction and uh, hit us. It's like they hit a stop sign and um, now we see the semblance of uh, not just a plateau we might be seeing rising case rates in that region as well uh, next slide and this is the southwest region also very uh, very uh, concerning uh, where you see a, uh, you see this small little mountain here on the right you, you follow the seven day moving average and very dramatic rise uh, in case rates and um, hospitals are uh, very 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 stretched um, next slide so we wanted to mention the test positivity uh, in New Mexico uh, quite some time ago. It seems like a long time ago. Uh, we used to talk about this target of 7.5%. And um, you can see that we're sitting in the double digits at about 12.5% 
currently. What this means to us is there's a very high burden of disease in our communities. And uh, we know that uh, this is this is most likely represents a fraction of, of the true burden of disease because these are uh, simply the um, the tests that were these these represent people who sought a test and these tests were reported to the state. I want to just mention that the test positivity among school age children is much, much higher and uh, very concerning because, again, we know to shut down chains of transmission, we, we want to identif identify as many cases of, as possible. So any symptoms, please get your children tested uh, for SARS-CoV-2. Um, uh, it will really help us keep our schools open and uh, shut down uh, chains of transmission. We did want to mention there is the increasing availability of over-the-counter tests. We think this is a great thing. I want to get a tool into your hand so that you can identify uh, uh, if you are worried about the possibility that you have COVID-19, I want to have tools available and over-the-counter tests. I think this is a wonderful um, development that these tools are becoming more readily available. So, but these results are not reported to the state. So of course that, that uh, causes a little bit of complication when we calculate our test percent positivity. Um, but the primary goal uh, is to ensure availability of tests and to ensure that uh, as easy access to a diagnosis as possible. So I think the next slide is my last slide and then I can turn this over. Um, so we wanted to mention safer ways to celebrate the holidays. Um, and I believe all of these points are really well known to everyone, but certainly holidays are extremely important for all of us uh, to continue these traditions that, that, that are so dear to our hearts and to, to gather together with loved ones. The absolutely best way to make the holidays safer is uh, to, to protect those amongst your family and friends that are not eligible yet for vaccination. Um, so to protect them, that means everyone who is eligible get out and get uh, vaccinated. Also, please take a look at how uh, well um, what type of mask you're wearing. It really needs to be a well-fitting mask that covers your nose and your mouth. Um, wearing a mask in public and indoor settings, regardless of vaccination status, is really, really important. Um, I want to just mention, you know, we consider delaying any travel plans if, if you're not fully vaccinated. Um, that is, um, and if you are not fully vaccinated and you, you plan to travel, there are some steps that you can take to make it safer, including testing before travel, testing after travel. And then the last few points, I think everybody's well aware, avoid crowded, poorly ventilated uh, spaces. If you're sick or have symptoms, uh, please don't host or attend a gathering. You're, you, please sit this one out um, so that we don't cause uh, clusters or outbreaks um, during the holiday se uh, season. And then as always, get tested if you have symptoms or co of COVID-19 or if you if you're a close contact, please, please get tested. It's a really fantastic uh, tool and uh, COVID can masquerade as many different things. And so without a test, it's very difficult to know if indeed um, you have COVID-19 or not. So I believe that's my last slide. I'm gonna turn this over now to um, Secretary Scrace. 
Thanks so much, both to Laura and Christine. Uh, I get a lot of folks reaching out to me, asking me how I'm doing and uh, how I like both jobs. And one thing I have to say is like the best part of doing what I'm doing is the chance to work with professionals like Drs. Parahone and Dr. Ross. We've got a lot of people behind the scenes at these um, <clears throat> you know, press briefings, Brianna Henley, Matt Bieber, others, and um, just a fantastic team. Uh, and really wonderful to debate these issues before we get to the press conference level and work our way through the naughty problems that we're seeing. And as you can see, we're facing some very serious problems today. I'm going to talk a little bit more <clears throat> about vaccine breakthrough cases. Next slide, please. The governor alluded to the fact that we were realizing that booster shots are ultimately going to be necessary. And you've seen this one before. This is uh, the orange are the, num the number and percent of people um, who have had cases, hospitalizations, and deaths who were unvaccinated. And as you can see, we're over 90 percent in deaths, about 80 percent uh, in <clears throat> hospitalizations, and about 70 percent in cases. And if you've been watching every week or even intermittently, you know that these blue shaded areas for the vaccinated people are growing somewhat. And uh, we're still getting great protection and reducing the risk of death, but they're growing. So more cases, more hospitalizations, some feeling that the really sick people in the hospital are unvaccinated people, but we, as you can see, have had some deaths as well. Uh, <clears throat> I get a lot of emails from people who I am incredibly envious of because they must have an enormous amount of free time and they might write me really, really long emails. We sort of have a slide-by-slide -slide critique and someone said, there's no way to conclude here from this slide that we're having any kind of vaccine, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, resistance or I'm sorry, uh, you know, waning of immunity from vaccines. And so I'm going to show you this slide and uh, the next slide, if you don't like it, you can blame the person who sent me the email. This is just another slide that we follow. I'm going to ask you to ignore the red dotted line today because uh, it doesn't <clears throat> tell as much of the story, but you can see the green curve here is the, uh, the number of cases per 100,000 or your chances of, you know, getting COVID if you're unvaccinated with a sharp, sharp, steep increase in July when Delta emerged. And now another, if you look at it, equally sharp increase. Now, Christine will yell at me if I make any comments about what's going on in the gray, but it's not looking good there in the gray either. And, and then on the bottom orange line, you can see very similar but extremely blunted curves where when Delta emerged in mid-July, we saw a slight modest increase in the chances of getting COVID or the case rate, and now uh, a further increase and a little bump in the gray area as well. And so this slightly upsloping orange curve uh, that you see partly is due to Delta, but partly is due to waning immunity as research points out and really frankly was part of the reason that new mexico was one of the leaders in deciding that everyone who had not had a booster shot in either two or six months depending on the vaccine really should be entitled to get one we've had great great uptake on that as laura showed you and uh, we're excited about that uh, but at the same time 
the governor also alluded to, you know, maybe three shots is what full uh, immunity is. And we got asked a question a couple of weeks ago, is it under discussion to change the definition of fully vaccinated? And I said, no, it isn't, but it is under discussion now. And so we're looking at that. We're working on that. We're trying to decide what would a revised definition of full immunity be for the state of New Mexico. We should have more information for you next time. Okay, let's go on, Brianna, to uh, hospitalizations and deaths. More difficult news to share. Uh, another curve uh, that we haven't shown before, but that we review every week. This is the, and, and it will be on our vaccine breakthrough report that we're going to be getting out onto the web uh, one of these days soon. Green line, unvaccinated people, hospitalizations, very steep uptick mid-July, and uh, uh, another steep, not quite a steep uptick going on now. Whereas with the orange line, the vaccinated people, just a slow, steady, no sudden moves, no sudden changes, but a slow, slight increase in the rate of hospitalization for uh, those who are vaccinated. Next slide, please. Things are not going well at our hospitals. We continue in crisis standards of care. I believe as of today, we have six hospitals now in active crisis standards of care. We continue to seek federal relief and uh, bring in contracted workers from out of state to help with a crisis uh, that is getting actually more severe in places like Farmington right now. But you can see that our self-scoring, we were solidly in crisis standards of care. And I would really encourage you uh, to provide encouragement to anybody you know in healthcare, anybody you know that works in a hospital right now. Uh, this is a very difficult time for healthcare workers, not just because of the exhaustion of being at this for uh, 20 months now, but also the frustration of dealing with what now has become a largely preventable disease. Someone put in the chat on Facebook, which I don't follow myself, so uh, don't try to reach me that way, that they know they're from Farmington. They know 10 people who personally know 10 people who are in the hospital, uh, all of them unvaccinated, five of them have died. And so imagine that kind of trauma uh, to the family that, and, and the hospital workers who have to deal with that every single day. Next slide, please, Brianna. You know, here's the bed counts. Uh, last week we had only eight ICU beds. Now we're up to 10. Still nowhere near enough ICU beds. What this does mean is someone having a heart attack right now may or may not have access to ICU care in New Mexico. And frankly, as cases start rising again in other states, we may not find a bed there. We continue to transfer in the 40 to 80 uh, people per week out of state for hospital care. We tend to take about two or three transfers from out of state into state for hospital care. So a dramatic difference that indicates New Mexico's low hospital capacity and the struggle of staffing uh, because so many of our hospital workers are exhausted or retiring or, or just frankly giving up their healthcare careers because of the relentlessness of the work uh, in hospital settings today and for the past 18 months. Next slide. 
Uh, on, the, on the right again with deaths, we do seem to be experiencing a plateau. This is deaths per week. Um, I think this may start curving up a little bit just because we've been having uh, 10 to 12 deaths a day more recently, but we'll see. But we have had a plateau. It rose, as you can see, to 88 in one week. I think it was the week of September 6th. And then since then, it's kind of glided down and plateaued. And as I said at the beginning, one preventable death is a tragedy, uh, not only for that life that's lost, but for all the people who stay behind and deal with the grieving for that person. Next slide. Uh, we do have some good news on the treatment side and some new uh, news as well. So next slide, we continue to break records in New Mexico. Uh, on the left, we have remdesivir, which you may remember is the treatment we give to people in the hospital who are moderate, moderately ill, not severely ill, but moderately ill, helps, seems to help keep them out of intensive care units where we have no room. Also shortens their hospital stay to make room for additional unvaccinated people who are admitted. And then on the right, excellent news as well. Uh, you can see that the total number of BAM doses is on, a, I don't know, almost a 10 consecutive week uh, record, uh, week after week after week going up. And that's, that's really good to see because if we're giving, uh, let's just to make the math easy for me, if you'll bear with me, if we're giving a thousand treatments a week, that means we're avoiding 750 hospitalizations a week. That's an enormous, enormous difference. And so really wanna uh, thank all of you. You'll see the little red graph growing there, which is the BAM-Eddy combination. Uh, we're not getting as much Regeneron as uh, we used to, or those supplies have actually more stabilized. The federal government is providing new uh, monoclonal antibodies. There's a third one, uh, and uh, I'll, we'll talk about that more, uh, citrolimab. Uh, as we get the data reporting coming in, we're setting up our systems to, and a few doses of that are being given. Everybody wants the Regeneron because it's easier to administer, but as you can see, uh, it's worth it if we can prevent hospitalizations. Next slide, please. Uh, we have the leaderboard here again today, uh, and you can see that uh, Presbyterian, who ha that has a statewide network of hospitals, reports as one, is the leader with 175 doses. And again, just remember that's like avoidance of 130 hospitalizations. Memorial Medical Center almost to 100, Guadalupe County Hospital, which is a pretty small hospital, my friends, and they are doing a great job. Thank you, Christina Campos, again, uh, 73 doses. Gerald Champion at 63 down in Alamogordo, where they're up against it as well. And they declared crisis standards of care and of course sent one regional medical center first hospital to declare crisis standards of care and still in crisis standards of care as we speak uh, and in a really tough situation. Next slide. I want to talk briefly. I got a question about this a couple of weeks ago. We got some more information. There's a couple new antiviral pills that one could take when if one's at higher risk has a positive COVID test. We haven't seen all the details yet. It will probably be for very, very similar to MABs, monoclonal antibodies, symptomatic people uh, with a positive COVID test 
were at higher risk for hospitalization or death. Good news, uh, preliminary data on uh, some of these antivirals uh, show a reduction in hospitalization of up to 90%, 80 to 90%. Monoclonal antibodies, 75%. So, and, and of course, a monoclonal antibody treatment requires finding a provider, going to the hospital, getting an infusion, being supervised for another hour, a pretty time and resource intensive. Uh, the move to oral uh, drugs to take early an infection uh, would free up some of those resources. Hospitals are currently deploying uh, to give monoclonal antibodies uh, and perhaps allow us to start doing a lot more outpatient oral treatment. As a physician, I'm particularly excited about this. I think, to be really honest with you, all I ever talk about is, this: you know, we have to learn to live with COVID. And this might be one of the most significant advances uh, for the world in terms of learning to live with COVID is that people get tested quickly and go on early oral therapy, particularly at high risk. Now, the downside uh, of this is we are quite certain that we will not get a large supply of this when this first starts. We're likely to follow a similar distribution process like we're uh, using with monoclonal antibodies. We've been told by the federal government to be ready to start passing out some of these drugs by uh, the end of this month. We'll see if that timeline holds, but ultimately uh, this is a drug uh, that if its effectiveness holds up and these drugs reduce hospitalization by 80 to 90% that we want, want and will need uh, supplied in massive quantities so that any uh, provider in the state, doctor, nurse, practitioner, uh, physician's assistant, really any provider can provide this. We can go to our pharmacy and get it. So there's a really bright light at the end of the tunnel. This time it's not an oncoming train. I think part of living with COVID will be heavily based on, uh, uh, on these new drugs coming out. Uh, there's another class of drugs that I'll talk about next week, but we knew we would go long today. So I'll, I'll leave it at that for today, but happy to take questions. Next slide. I think we're getting near the end. Um, I did want to mention that we did have another death from ivermectin. You'll recall that about three months ago in August, we had two deaths of individuals with COVID who came in the hospital very, very late in their course, uh, very late in their course. They were staying at home, relying on ivermectin instead of getting medical treatment. You know, if you have COVID and you're very short of breath and you're starting to turn blue, you do not need ivermectin. You need to call 911 and get to a place where you can get oxygen. This case was different. Uh, another case here in New Mexico, a 60-year-old man who took the horse preparation of ivermectin. I don't expect any of you to remember this, but I mentioned a couple months ago that the normal dose that I prescribe of ivermectin for people who get uh, parasite infections is three milligram dose a day. This gentleman took 150 milligrams, had uh, liver failure, kidney failure, and actually died from the ivermectin without the COVID. So please, please, uh, if you've taken ivermectin, stop, call the Poison Control Center and any providers, of course, are under a public health order to report any, uh, any uh, ivermectin uh, complications that they see as well. So I'm gonna go to the last, uh, second to last slide now, and we're probably gonna show this every time 
for a while. Uh, another set of emails I get are from people that say, uh, and I wish, I wish, let me think how to say this. I think it's a good idea for all of us to be as kind as we possibly can when we send emails. I don't always, I'm not always perfect at that either, but I've been getting a lot of emails lately saying, you know, New Mexico has more cases than Arizona. New Mexico has a mask mandate. Arizona doesn't. So obviously a mask mandate doesn't work. And as a matter of fact, we even have people at border state governor level saying things like that. And it's a complete misunderstanding of what it means to fight disease and what it means to fight a pandemic. So let me give you an example. You know, keeping a car running involves regular maintenance and, you know, uh, tune-ups from time to time and rotating your tires and things like that. And saying that masks aren't effective because New Mexico has high case counts would be like going out to your car one morning, having it not start and concluding that gasoline was no longer effective in helping cars to run. Turns out there's lots of other things. And so that's what this slide says. We all have uh, 10 things at our disposal that we can do or that as a society we can do. Physical distancing, Christine talked about staying home, even from Thanksgiving. If you're sick, you know, washing your hands, wearing masks, very important uh, component, avoiding touching your face. You know, if you're in a crowd, don't spend a lot of time there, particularly indoors, getting tested immediately good air filtration or spending more time outside. You know, there's the work we do through the state and federal government to support the pandemic response. Of course, uh, testing and then getting, uh, you know, isolated, telling your contacts that they need to be quarantined. And then of course, vaccines and boosters. And, you know, it's not really fair to any of these things. It would be like saying, uh, and people do say this too. You know, New Mexico has more cases than Colorado, although that probably isn't true today, uh, than Colorado per 100,000 people. And, uh, and we have a higher vaccination rate, so therefore vaccines don't work. And I think the thing, the point is, just to go back, let's take the masking argument. It isn't that masks don't work. We know masks work. What we know also is that if no one wore a mask, we'd have way, way, way more cases than we're having today. And so we know all of these things the, work. The second time and was five So uh, anyway, thanks to all of you who have emailed me picking one of these as and citing it as proof that uh, masks or vaccines or whatever don't work. But that's really not how science looks at it. And that really actually isn't uh, effectively true. It's a complicated system. There's a lot we can do. And, and it's not fair to any of these variables to isolate them and draw conclusions about their effectiveness. Uh, just as it would be silly to decide if you had a full tank of gas uh, and your car wouldn't start, the gasoline is no longer effective for running your car. And with that, I'm gonna close. Uh, I really appreciate all the comments of my colleagues. Just delightful to have the governor here with us today. Again, uh, get tested if you think you may have COVID or been exposed. <clears throat> if you have a positive test, you have symptoms and risk factors, obesity on its own, 
being over 65 or any one of the many, the 30, I think, conditions to predispose you to a serious COVID disease, get monoclonal antibody treatment. We feel like we've been really successful in convincing all of you to do that. So thanks to every single person who's done that. Uh, 950 treatments a week is, I never thought we'd get that high, really excited. And all of those things that I showed you in the Swiss cheese model uh, still are important, including even getting preventative healthcare. We're so proud uh, of our success with boosters We're so, uh, and getting people boosted. We're really, really proud of our really fast start out of the gate uh, with the five to 11 vaccines or kind of, uh, we're doing it a little bit faster than we did uh, the first week of the uh, 12 to 15 year olds. And so we're very excited that New Mexico is taking this opportunity. I had two grandkids vaccinated last week and I can't tell you the number of pictures and cheers and, and text messages that were passed back and forth between my kids and the grandkids and everybody else. Uh, we're so excited uh, that they can be vaccinated and do more, uh, maybe even a little more traveling. So with that, Matt, I know we've taken up a lot of time, but uh, I, I want to make sure we have a chance to answer questions. So I'll stop and turn it back to you. Great. Thanks so much to you and to our other panelists. Uh, as usual, we'll do the raise the hand method here in Zoom. So please raise your hands and uh, we'll go through as many rounds of questions as we need to. Uh, we'll start with Julia Goldberg, followed by Chris McKee, then Steve Edmondson. And just a quick reminder slash request, please name your outlet uh, when you begin asking a question. Julia, you are unmuted. Uh, thank you, Matt, and thanks everyone uh, for letting me ask a question. Dr. Space, I asked a few weeks ago whether the definition of fully um, vaccinated would change, and you said no, and now you're saying maybe, and so I don't have to ask that question as I was going to, but the follow-up question. Julia, yeah. You, that's not what you asked me. You asked me if that was under discussion, and I said no. Oh, um, okay. Thank you for reminding me what I asked you. Um, now that... <laughs> Follow-up question I had, uh, regardless of whether it was under discussion or not, was I wasn't entirely clear from the slides. I understand that the you have waning immunity as tracked by increases, uh, increasing breakthrough cases, um, and increasing number of people are vaccinated. But are there also, I guess, I think they're called immunogenicity studies. Are we also seeing like decline? Do we know that there's a decline in antibodies as well? And how? How much will we need to know whether immunity wanes from the booster shot before that definition can be considered? Like, would it just be constantly a moving target, I guess, is what I'm asking? Thanks. I'm going to start, but I'm going to let Christine weigh in on this because uh, she was the one who first sent me the slides from the White House presentation uh, in August when this subject first came up. And, and those very first studies, Julia, you're right, were about waning antibody levels declining over time. But the physicians in the group, the ones of us on the panel said, yeah, but you know, there's a lot more to immunity than antibody levels. We have cell mediated immunity and a lot of things, you know, the antibodies go down, but if they're, if you're exposed that you can make antibodies again. And so um, I was wanting to be a little bit more convinced. I, I think uh, Christine was ahead of me on this one. Uh, but, uh, but now that we're seeing more New Mexicans get infected, and there's been a lot more literature. There's a veterans hospital study, and I meant to put it in the slides today, and uh, uh, that shows uh, fairly significant declines in immunity, similar to the Israel studies as well. As far as what exactly it'll take, 
for us to know what the routine and regimen is. Uh, I think someone asked me over the weekend, uh, does this mean we're going to need a booster every six months? And I said, well, I know we need one now and call me in five months and I'll have an opinion for you then. Christine, what do you think? Um, I'm not sure I was ahead of you on this, but I'll take that. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, Julia. If you if you look at the um, uh, ACIP slide deck, uh, it shows you all the data that was reviewed um, to recommend uh, boosters, uh, beginning at that six month mark for the mRNA vaccines, and then to recommend the second shot for everybody for for J and J eighteen and over. Um, so there is a large body of data uh, that was reviewed. It included immunogenicity data, lab data, uh, trial data, surveillance data, global data. <laughs> and so all of this was put together and um, they carefully weighed uh, the, um, the vaccine efficacy data and all of its limitations together what we, what we know from the immunogenicity data to make the recommendation um, uh, for uh, boosters. And, and I am not an immunologist, so I'm not even gonna go down that pathway of talking about um, uh, the immune response, um, but it does appear uh, that uh, waning vaccine efficacy, uh, when you look at pre and post Delta, uh, it's concerning and um, uh, there has been a clear decline and there's certain subpopulations that we're very worried about, like uh, individuals who are 65 and older with uh, comorbidities and who are at high risk of, of poor outcomes. Um, so yes, a large amount of data uh, that was reviewed, not only um, uh, vaccine efficacy data or surveillance data that, that we're sharing. Yeah, and Laura, I don't know if you have anything you want to add. I, I did find my VA slide, so let me show that and then you can type in. Uh, this is one for a science community, so I apologize, it's a little obtuse, but can you see a slide there with a graph on it, anybody? Uh, I'm not hearing anything, so. Yep, I can see it, looks good. Okay, and for some reason I can't show it in full screen, but that's okay. Uh, you can just see this is a veteran study published in Science, a great journal showing the time dependent and it's a really weird y-axis. And so I don't, I, I probably can't explain it effectively. I would just say it's sort of a placeholder for overall level of immunity, if you will. It's actually one minus the hazard ratio. So I'll just leave that at that. Uh, unusual y-axis, you don't see that very often, but you can see the declines over time. And I think our discussions will just be more focused about uh, this time now about boosters. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't being facetious. I think in another five months, we'll have a lot more information. Okay, moving on, we'll turn to Chris McKee, followed by Steve Edmondson. Uh, then Jared Ebenreck. Jared, I hope I pronounced your name correctly there. Feel free to correct me. Chris, you are unmuted. All right. 
Thank you all very much. This is Chris McKee here from KRQE News 13. Um, asking a question about nursing home cases. Um, well, I couldn't pull up numbers to specifically just sort of say, hey, they're up. It seems that there appear to be more cases emerging in assisted living and nursing home uh, facilities. And just kind of looking at the daily reports, there is that sort of list of cases and places where cases have been reported in the last 28 days. And that seems to be getting to be a longer list as of recent. So I just wanted to ask um, broadly, is that something that we're seeing right now? Am I correct in saying that there appear to be more maybe COVID cases emerging in nursing homes, which I would imagine are mostly breakthrough cases because the vaccination rates were pretty high. Um, are we seeing more cases in nursing homes right now? And maybe why is there such a surge? Is the the push really to get more boosters out there? Um, I do have a nursing home report. It goes through uh, November 3rd. That's the most current one I have. And um, But yeah, I think we're seeing an uptick. You know, one of the things we saw at the beginning of the pandemic was the nursing homes kind of took the lead, you know, in terms of uh, <clears throat> cases and then tended to go up and down that first couple waves with the level of disease in the community, which makes sense. Because while nursing home residents stay in their nursing home, for the most part, unless they're going out for dialysis or another treatment, staff come and go every day. And so we've found many things about nursing homes through the years, but basically the more cases there are in the community, the more cases there are in nursing homes. On the other hand, with the more recent waves at least initially, we did not see the same level of uptick in nursing homes. I think some of that was due to heavy vaccination, heavy testing, uh, surveillance testing every week, things like that. I, too, Chris, I don't have a graph to look at, but I've had the same sense as, as you are that cases are going up. And I, and I, don't, uh, I don't really know if I understand the reason why um, the federal government has removed all uh, restrictions on visitation in nursing homes, but they've effectively said that nursing homes need to just let uh, folks in. Uh, and that is not going to reduce the number of cases in nursing homes. As we, I think the success nursing homes had was keeping a larger number of community members from coming and going and potentially infecting, infecting residents. Uh, also, I will tell you a very, uh, aggressive booster efforts underway in uh, in the nursing homes and a good success there, good progress, lots of clinics. And so uh, the nursing homes for their residents certainly have just uh, really taken this seriously. And I think on staff, uh, same sort of thing. That's that, you know, that we do have a public health order requiring staff in nursing homes to be vaccinated or uh, have an exemption, and if they have an exemption, they have to have weekly testing. And so I think if we do make a change to the definition of fully vaccinated uh, that incorporates a booster, then those folks more than two months out from their J&J &J or more than six months out from another vaccine would then uh, be expected to get a booster as well. Still under discussion. So lots of information there, but I'm not able to find the latest report in my email. So I apologize for that. I'm sorry, I'm not able to find it at the moment either. 
And I do think um, whenever we have an uptick in cases in the community, then um, certainly the, the nursing home residents are at risk. Uh, but I would just say I um, nationally, uh, the trend is really, really striking. If you compare what happened um, uh, a year and a half ago, if you look at the trends with cases in nursing homes and, and deaths, um, prior to the winter surge, during the winter surge, and then afterwards. Um, and uh, it's clear uh, the relationship with uh, vaccination uptake. So vaccine coverage is really, really high uh, among uh, the, the elderly or folks who traditionally are in nursing homes. And there has been a remarkable decline um, in the case rates and, and the death rates. Um, and I, uh, apologize that we don't have New Mexico data handy, but I will say you overall, the trends uh, are really remarkable as far as the um, the difference that we're seeing, and it's clearly related to uh, vaccines. Great. Okay. Next, we will turn to uh, Steve Edmondson, followed by Jared Ebenreck, followed by Brittany Costello. Steve, you are unmuted. All right, can you hear me now? Yes, sir. Okay, very good. Uh, I have a couple of questions. Uh, these are uh, statistical questions I've got for you. Do you know what percentage of the spread can be traced back to the unvaccinated as opposed to the vaccine? We know that you know the vaccines are not completely eliminating transmission. And then the other one is uh, we also know that this pandemic mainly hits, as far as deaths go, it really hits hard among those over 65. I think it's like 68% of our deaths here in New Mexico are over 65 and they make up, I think maybe about 15% of the total cases. But what percentage of the total cases, or excuse me, deaths uh, involve comorbidities? Is there anywhere where we can find that information? And then also it, is obesity considered in with the comorbidities is, or is that a separate category? So Christine, I'll bring up the link while you answer the question. Okay. And by the way, an it's an interesting question about what percent of spread comes from vaccinated versus. And I'm sorry, you're going to have to repeat that first part of the question. I'm so sorry. Okay. And by the way, I'm from uh, KYRN 102.1 in Socorro. I don't think I mentioned that. Uh, but the, the first question was the, the percentage of spread that is can be traced back to unvaccinated as opposed to vaccinated. Uh, do you all have any kind of numbers on that? Uh, I know we know, you know, how many, you know, you all are keeping up with the cases among vaccinated as opposed to unvaccinated. But as far as the spread goes, can you trace that back and uh, give a percentage of you know, the, the spread, the transmission that's being caused by the unvaccinated as opposed to those that are vaccinated. Thank you. So that's a really complicated question. And um, I thank you for that. And no, I don't think I can put a percentage on it for you. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, it's very, um, it's very complicated to conduct case investigations and contact tracing during the midst of a surge like we are seeing. It's very, um, it's a very difficult task. Um, and we are fine, you know, in order to, 
to try to keep up with those numbers. Um, we've had to shorten the number of questions that we ask people, and we ensure that we uh, get them the information that they need about isolating and quarantining and uh, uh, giving, linking them to various services. Um, so uh, being able to put a percentage uh, on that would be very difficult. But I can say if you just look at that breakdown on the number of cases that we're seeing right now amongst the unvaccinated, and there is different data from uh, various um, uh, clinical trials, different types of, of studies that have looked at um, whether somebody who is infected, is, let's say they have a breakthrough case, what's their ability to, to transmit? And we certainly know that they can transmit. Um, and they, inside a household, they might be just as likely uh, to transmit within that household. Um, but we don't know, there's still a lot of questions remaining. And what we see, there are some differences between vaccinated and unvaccinated with regards to that uh, viral load and, and the dynamics of how quickly you, you may have a high level of viremia, then how quickly it may um, decrease and then you're what's that window where you're actually going to be uh, possibly infectious and transmitting to others and it may in fact be shorter. So I don't have a, a concrete answer for you other than to say we certainly know that the unvaccinated are the majority of our cases and therefore uh, you, you can expect that that um, a lot of the transmission is occurring from, from those chains that start off with someone unvaccinated. Um, let me pause there. I think you were gonna pull up uh, some information on the mortality. Yeah, question. I was. Let me, let me uh, just, Steve, I'm gonna show you how to get to this material. Uh, fascinating material. Again, hats off to Christine and her team for producing so many reports every week. So you go to the DOH homepage, right? And you go to uh, medical, and scientific reports and click on epidemiology reports. Okay, and just to save time. And then you, this is the mortality report. You can click on that. And uh, I'm just changing tabs, but you get the same result. And then you scroll down to page 14 of 28. And this is number and percent of deaths by underlying cause of death on the death certificate. So this is what the doctor wrote on the death certificate. So. 93.1% of the time, it's listed as the very first cause of death. And then you can see the comorbidities here, are, are actually these are listed as the first cause. And you know what? I'm not sure. Oh, here they are. Here are the uh, percentage of deaths by underlying condition by age group. And so hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, chronic lung disease, obesity, and you asked about obesity, and yes, that is a, a big factor, chronic liver disease and immunocompromised individuals. So these are the things that doctors, like for example, a doctor in Socorro would write on the death certificate. We take all that information, put it into our system and generate these reports from that. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Will we have a chance for another round of questions later? Yes, sir. We're going to go round and round as many times as we need to. Okay. Then I'll hold, I'll hold my question. Sounds good. Okay. Next, we'll turn to Jared Evanrek, followed by Brittany Costello, 
And then anyone else who'd like to get in on this first round of questions, uh, please raise your hand now. Otherwise, we'll uh, we'll put all the hands down and then we'll let everybody raise them again for round two. So Jared, you're up and Brittany, you'll follow. All right, hopefully you can hear me. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you so much. I'm Jared Ebenrek with KUNM. Um, and thanks for pronouncing the name right. Well, well played. Uh, two uh, questions. Um, so I'll start with one. We'll see if we get to the other. Uh, both the governor and Dr. Scrace uh, reference exhausted healthcare workers in this time. There's a survey from this year from the American Nurses Foundation finding that about half of the U.S. Uh, nurses are exhausted, um, possibly considering leaving their position because of the burnout on their health and the well-being, as well as citing insufficient staffing. Um, as New Mexico looks at being in crisis standards of care uh, that hospitals are using, some of them have already been using, what can be done to make sure that effective health care is still being administered and to address the staffing shortages that have been well documented since before the pandemic that now seemingly are only getting worse per that survey? Yeah, you know, uh, great question. Uh, I'm married to a nurse. She's not exhausted, but she's often frustrated by uh, what she does. with. This can be solved immediately if everyone would just get vaccinated. So that's what can be done. Everybody just needs to get vaccinated. We will, won't have uh, hardly any COVID hospital admissions. We'll have room for people with heart attacks and strokes like we don't have now. As I, I You might not have been here last week. We presented a slide that showed MAPA New Mexico and the number of healthcare resources people mainly were bringing into this all people like uh, doctors, mainly nurses, uh, techs, uh, you know, pharmacists uh, and the like, who were bringing in to try to help um, these hospitals. But, you know, really the number one thing is for people to get vaccinated. I mean, it's really a simple solution. And, and folks, and, and I think the exhaustion that I think people did really well, it was really hard last year at this time for people, but they got through it. But the exhaustion that they're experiencing now is much worse because they're dealing with unnecessary admissions and unnecessary deaths. COVID cases that could have easily been prevented if um, if people had been vaccinated. So I, I, I hope you don't think my answer is glib. It is actually the right answer. And you can just wander into a hospital near you. Well, you can't do that because access is restricted. But if you if you stood outside in the parking lot and asked, what is there one thing that we could do as New Mexico to help you be less exhausted as a nurse, almost everyone would say, yeah, get everybody vaccinated. And they've even done commercials begging everyone to get vaccinated for that very reason. But I talked to them all the time. Um, the, it is really very, very tough. And, uh, and I think the other thing people could do uh, to avoid healthcare exhaustion and burnout is to keep up with their regular medical care. Um, you know, keep up with your uh, provider visits. If you haven't had your, you're on medicine for something like high blood pressure or cholesterol or heart disease, and you haven't had blood tests in over a year, probably ought to get back in and do those. Uh, we're seeing an awful lot of people with normally well-controlled conditions end up in the hospital because they've not sought out healthcare. So uh, I think that really is the answer. I can tell you that leaders of hospitals 
have been unbelievably creative doing everything they can possibly think of to keep the morale of their staff up and keep people going. And, you know, uh, in the summer, like in like May and June, uh, a lot of hospitals kind of literally demanded that their folks take time off to recover and restore. And so it's, it is a crisis though. And I think we can fix it by having everyone uh, get vaccinated or follow all the, if, if everybody simply followed all the other public health recommendations without uh, vaccination, that would really help. If everyone would get monoclonal antibody treatment or when the pills come out, take those pills um, instead of um, waiting until they're, you know, until they can't breathe, that would help a lot. But, you know, I think the solution to the crisis in hospitals and healthcare personnel is us. It's every New Mexican. It isn't something that, that necessarily the state, we're certainly doing everything we can. The solution, the ultimate solution is not the state or hospital leaders or anybody else. It's all New Mexicans banding together and protecting hospital workers by getting vaccinated. And I'm passionate about this in case you can't tell. Well, I, I appreciate the uh, the answer. Um, it, it did. It is to be noted that the Legislative Finance Committee in 2020 noted that we were already, as a state, facing shortages um, looming. These can't have been improved. Part of the question I'm wondering is, what is the state doing in light of the fact that that report came out basically just before the pandemic hit? and it can't have gotten better. So we're looking at a problem that existed before the pandemic. The pandemic's made it worse. I would suspect that the rate of burnout and nurse shortage um, is still an issue moving forward with pandemic, without pandemic. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, what the state is doing right now is managing the pandemic and getting hundreds, get, through our own contracts, getting hundreds of healthcare workers to come in from out of state to help provide relief or connecting hospitals to the uh, to FEMA, the federal agency that will pay them extra money if they need it to hire traveling nurses. We're doing a lot. We're doing a lot. And uh, uh, you're right. New Mexico has is in the bottom ten states in terms of the number of beds per person, the number of ICU beds per person. We're in the bottom third, and staffing uh, because of that uh, is is lower as well. So. This, yeah, this is, wasn't a big surprise or we weren't caught by surprise uh, about having a low number of beds or no long number of staff. You know, I've been working in healthcare for 40 years and in New Mexico for, I don't know, however long it's been, 23. I've led very large healthcare systems. If you work in healthcare as a leader, nurse staffing, at least if you work in New Mexico, nurse staffing is like generally one of your top three issues, um, at least it has been here for the past 23 years. Okay, Matt, let's move on. Moving on. Next, we'll turn to Brittany Costello, followed by Algernon DeMassa. Brittany, you are unmuted. Hi, Brittany Costello with KOB4. Um, just wanted to ask about um, the vaccines for school-aged children. I'm wondering, given the information you guys kind of talked about today, if we could see or expect to see any mandates on vaccinations for that, that group. Um, could you touch on that, please? Yeah, um, 
right now, oh, is it, do you want to go ahead, David? Oh, you go ahead. I'll, okay. I'll finish up. Sure. Um, so right now for kids, there aren't any mandates. Um, it, it's uh, EUA right now and it's not FDA approved. But I imagine that, you know, just like there's 16 vaccines that kids have to get in order to go to school, that COVID eventually may become one of those 16 vaccines that you need to get in order to go to school. But for now, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's strongly suggested. It's the main way we can protect the kids and prevent the spread. Like, you know, Dr. Ross shared, you know, Christine, like there's all these kids getting COVID because COVID likes to go where the people aren't vaccinated. So um, yeah, so I, I think it, it could be in the future, but not right now. Yeah, and I would just add that I think someone asked me this question like eight months ago, like if there are kids for vaccines for kids, are we gonna require them for school? And I said, the earliest that that's likely to be addressed is the fall of 2022. And so we're gonna have to see um, how it works out. You know, it took America, uh, I don't know, like 80 years after the influenza pandemic ended in, uh, 1920, I think it was 2002, when vac influenza vaccine first became a required immunization for attending school. So we just don't know. I mean, would, would having kids uh, be vaccinated against COVID in schools uh, be something that would be a strategy that could help us live with this pandemic for another two to three or four years? I, I mean, I think yes, but you know, we just have need a lot more evidence and data. The good news is, the really, really good news is just like we're seeing this overwhelming amount of data now for all the vaccines about waning immunity, the really good news is we're gonna have a ton of data on kids now that they're all getting vaccinated. So by the summer, we'll know a lot more about uh, whether or not this makes sense to even consider as one of those, I guess it would be 17, right? Because we'd be adding one, uh, school-based uh, vaccinations. Uh, I don't know, uh, Christine, do you have any thoughts on that? DOH does have a process that we use to evaluate all vaccines. And, um, and I know everybody at DOH, uh, I know a lot of people at DOH are involved in those decisions and they're very, very serious decisions that take quite a lot of time to review. Christine, anything? Um, well, I, I've worked in public health a long time and, and have worked uh, uh, in the United States and globally. And I'll, I'll just say, I, you know, I, I think um, uh, folks in public health are just uh, um, extremely strong advocates for childhood vaccination because we know the history of, of these diseases that have caused a lot of morbidity and mortality, and we no longer see in the United States um, because of uh, public health efforts to roll out vaccination and to make, uh, you know, childhood vaccinations just a, a normalized routine uh, activity. Um, and uh, I think it would. Um, I imagine we, we will see COVID added to that list. And I'm, I would say I'm looking forward to that, to that day. Why? 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 Steve, you might need to mute. Yeah. 
Thanks very much. Okay, next we'll turn to Algernon Damasa. Algernon, you are unmuted. Thank you, doctors and secretary. Uh, uh, so some things that we're gleaning here are that things are not improving right now at hospitals. And, um, and there are, there's an increase in incidences of pediatric cases, um, although vaccine uptake is also increasing, which seems to be a welcome sign. There's still vaccine resistance as well as resistance to the uh, system that was pictured in the Swiss cheese model, uh, mm -hmm. masks just being the most visible. Um, and I'm just wondering if the squeeze on our healthcare system and the risk to children, especially in school settings, mm -hmm. Um, if there are just there doesn't seem to be any appetite for going back to restrictions in public spaces, but is there discussion about different strategies for outreach and countering some of the misinformation that continues to circulate? Yeah, I'm going to start with Laura on that one because she's got a whole program of community health workers, and she's, as I said earlier, the czar of <laughs> strategy. We have a ton of information on that question, and. Uh, so, uh, Laura. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, the question is about how do we live with COVID? Because are we going to restrict, you know, have like, you know, all these mandated restrictions all the time and, you know, people not being able to, to do things because, you know, there's restrictions. I think what we are trying to do at Department of Health is really work with our communities, work with community health workers, work with different organizations to help people with the messaging, the messaging around vaccine confidence and really trying to meet people where they're at and not always, you know, it, I, I don't think it helps us to be like, you have to do this. I think a lot of people, when you say you have to do this or, you know, we're demanding you do this actually leads to people not wanting to do that. And that's not where we wanna be. We wanna be, meet, you know, listening and saying, okay, what would work for you? What would work for your community? How can we, you know, take the science, right? And say, okay, as a community, maybe we don't do super large gatherings, or if we do, like Christine was sharing on the Thanksgiving recommendations, right? Wear a mask when you're in a large um, community, when you don't know people are, are all vaccinated. And so we have a lot of resources. I'll put it in the link, our community resources, so that people, it's an easy way for people to talk to others, to listen to others, to, yeah, to meet people where they're at. So, so that's kind of our strategy that we're trying to do. And I think it's part of our global public health strategy, just trying to reach uh, more into communities and, and work alongside people and with people instead of saying, this is a mandate, we need to do this, you know, but like, hey, how can we work together and, and make things better for our whole community? Does that, does that help answer the question? And I'll put the links to the kind of community resources we have. Great, thank you. Okay, uh, I think that was pretty thoroughly. I do have a comment. I do have one quick comment, and that is one thing that's kind of surprised me because we sort of had some pretty good research data that said you're going to get up to 68%, and then after that, the 32% of people that are not going to get a single shot no matter what you do to them. Uh, and, you know, we don't have a lot we can do to them. Uh, but uh, and uh, it was interesting because um, it's going it's still going up. It's relentlessly going up. And 
you know, it's really exciting. Like 1% a week is a lot. It's a lot of an increase. And so uh, I, I'm pretty happy about that. Chris uh, McKee, uh, I just want to let you know, I did finally get open the report I got on November 3rd. It's a little bit of old data. All right. And, and just real, real quickly again, um, it's... Uh, And again, this is one of those, I think, anyway, I think you're right. You can see there are four groups here and it, the uh, symptomatic staff is yellow, staff without symptoms, green, residents with symptoms, red, and uh, residents without symptoms, blue. But I think you're right. And I don't have the data for subsequent weeks, but there clearly is an up, uptick. What we normally see and you can see it on this graph, actually, I was going to sort of, is staff cases go up first, and then resident cases go up a couple weeks afterwards, two, three weeks afterwards. So you're right about that trend. And uh, I know, uh, I think the primary strategy at this point is boosters for everyone. We've got great data on, on the mandate for vaccines for nursing home staff. Um, been very, very effective. We're really essentially at 100% of staff either, either vaccinated or they have some sort of an exemption. So that worked out well, and hopefully we'll have control cases. And again, I, I don't know what's gonna happen with wide open visitation. And David, I, I just wanna ask, I think what you were showing though is the, the trend of fully vaccinated. Oh, so was this, it? Yeah, so that's trend of, of breakthrough cases. Right. And so, yeah, we're seeing that trend go up over time. And nursing home residents are going to be, you know, would be as a group high risk for for a breakthrough case, um, because as we age, our our immune system doesn't tend to respond as robustly uh, to uh, vaccination, and um, uh, and as a group, they have uh, multiple comorbidities. So there would be there would be many reasons why, as a group, they'd be quite vulnerable to having a vaccine breakthrough case. So I think that's what you were showing is the trend. You're right. Yeah. Which, I, which and is, I don't have a I don't have a trend chart for all cases. So, Chris, I can dig that up and we'll get it to you. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's very helpful. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody. Okay, I think uh, that exhausts round one. So now's the time to raise your hand for round two for questions. And it uh, looks like we've got a couple up. So I'll just start with the ones I see. Uh, we'll start with Steve Edmonton, then Jared Ebenreck, uh, then Julia Goldberg. Steve, you are unmuted. Feel free to ask your question. Okay, and I think you all heard me asking what, when you were talking about the childhood vaccinations, I was asking, I, I'm, a, I'm a little confused as to why um, there is such a rush on the, the childhood vaccinations. Uh, from what I'm seeing, and I've been looking at the epidemiology reports throughout this thing, the hospitalizations are very low, like 1.6% of all our hospitalizations, and that's staying about the same, or children under age 18. Deaths are like one-tenth of 1% 1 of that. And one of the FDA advisors that voted on this said, well, we'll never know if they're safe until we start giving it, which to me sounds like we're making our kids guinea pigs to a certain extent. So help me to understand, and, I, and I'm, I'm completely serious about this, help me understand why I shouldn't be hesitant about giving that to my 
five to 11 year old, if the incidence, the severity of COVID is so much, I mean, it's, it's less, I believe this is correct for COVID than it is for seasonal flu. So correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah. So I think that, like, I don't think we feel like a responsibility to defend everything that someone says at an FDA committee meeting. And I think the idea that, like, I don't agree with that. I think that's absurd that we won't know whether it's safe until we start giving it to everyone, because that's why we have science. And that's why we have clinical trials. And that's why thousands of kids went through those clinical trials that demonstrated that the vaccine was safe. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go with that. Uh, and I would, I would let that one go. But on the other, I think a great question is, why should you get your five to 11 year old vaccinated? Well, they spread COVID to other people. I mean, if you're, if, I mean, if you had a five to 11 year old that lived all by themselves, you know, like, which they don't, you could make a case, but a lot of kids see their grandma, their grandpa, their parents, you know, once you get over 65, your chances of having an underlying condition are well over, you know, it's like 75, 80%. And so uh, everyone should get vaccinated to stop the spread of COVID. Kids should get vaccinated to stop the spread of COVID. We know that they get it just like adults, they transmit it just like adults. And it, it's kind of similar with influenza. A big national strategy is to vaccinate kids for influenza because they, they were a major vehicle for spreading influenza, even though they didn't have uh, some of the serious, um, you know, morbidity and mortality that of course adults do. What is the transmission rate? I mean, I, I think it's lower among kids. I know in Sweden, uh, they had basically their whole, you know, school system was still in it. It's like 1.9 kids and the teachers there didn't get, weren't transmitting or what weren't getting COVID any more than people in other, um, other lines of work. So that what is the transmission rate among children or do we know that? Oh, uh, well, maybe Christine can talk about that, but can I talk about like children and just the reasons why we might want to get our kids vaccinated, but basically children do transmit at the same rate, correct me if I'm wrong, Christine, at the, as adults. And uh, what, you know, we're also dealing with Delta, which has shown that children have been hospitalized at a higher rate and have died at a higher rate than before the Delta variant came. So we are, you know, it's true that not that many kids get very, very sick and die, but there are kids that do get sick and die. Um, the other thing is, is that uh, five to 11 year old vaccines, just like the adolescent vaccines were really, really highly studied. And you know, that, you know, they, that's why they take a longer time to do kids vaccines, because you do want to make sure you have the right dose and the, the right um, uh, safety measures for children. So basically they go through a, a very important phase steps of, of, of data, of, of um, scientific uh, studies, and in order to finally get reviewed and approved. So, you know, I, you know it, it is actually when they did the, the vaccine children um, studies, they actually showed that it was so highly effective in preventing COVID. Um, and yeah, and just, I think just that safety profile, the high safety studies we have 
really, I hope would help a parent make a decision that this is safe for my kids. But I, I totally get your hesitancy, right? I think every parent, like as a mom, I was like worried about my own kid, like, oh my God, there's myocarditis and young boys, you know? And, uh, but then for me as a parent, I was also like, well, the studies show that actually if they get COVID, they actually get a worse myocarditis, you know, which is inflammation of the heart. Um, they get, it's just much worse than if you uh, had it, you know, with the vaccine. So I think, you know, I think it's about um, giving the parents the information they need to make that decision, because I think every parent wants the best for their kid. Okay, thank you. Uh, next, we'll turn to Jared Ebenreck, followed by Julia Goldberg. Jared, you are unmuted. Uh, thanks so much again uh, for the opportunity. Jared uh, Ebenreck with KUNM. Um, the last question that I had um, for you all is just simply that in the past, uh, there had been a lot of reporting uh, during these um, news conferences about the efficacy of New Mexico's contact tracing program. Just wondering what the state of play is for that contact tracing program at this point. Anecdotally, you know, I'll hear reports even had a um, somebody text me, are they still doing contact tracing anymore? Um, so, the, so the curiosity is given the investment in that and uh, where things are with the spread, has the contact tracing program been effective at stopping the spread? What's the state of play right now with um, how it's going and what's the average time between results and then contact with uh, those that would have been um, exposed to that uh, positive COVID-19 patient? Thank you. Yeah, they're all great questions. As, as uh, Christine already mentioned, and I'm gonna have her go right after me, I'll just be brief. You know, when you have, uh, when you have a contact tracing unit that's staffed up to handle 300 cases a day and you get 1,500 a day, they immediately go underwater. Still working, still calling people. You know, the, what is effective about contact tracing is number one, making sure people are notified and that they isolate themselves. And then where we can, getting contact information. You know, early in the pandemic, we would call people and there'd be like, you know, they'd seen one person and went one place. And now, you know, my summary of the contact tracing data, which is very unsophisticated and Christine can correct me, is that basically everyone is going everywhere and seeing everyone. I mean, and so like what used to take maybe like, I don't know, like 20 to 40 minutes to do an interview and identify contacts is 30 times as complicated as it used to be. So we still know that isolation reduces spread in cases uh, uh, and and quarantine of contacts does the same. I don't know, Christine, if you wanna add more on the turnaround times and that sort of thing. I don't have the numbers in front of me, sorry, I can pull those up, but I just wanna say, yeah, great question. And, um, and I would just echo the same sentiments that we are still doing it. Uh, and just like the healthcare, uh, providers that we've talked about being exhausted, case investigators, contact tracers are really exhausted. So, uh, you know, this this is it, this pandemic is really really trying on not only uh, uh, the healthcare 
infrastructure, but also the public health infrastructure. And so we are still doing it, but yes, as um, Secretary Scrace mentioned, um, this is a highly contagious respiratory virus. Um, uh, uh, community transmission is very high now. And um, also uh, what is different is, is, you know, we're 20 months into this and people are now um, uh, changing their, their, many people are willing to take more risk than they were, you know, a year and a half ago. Uh, and so what that means is uh, this becomes uh, less, less effective as a disease control model. Um, and, but it is uh, effective at you know, the folks that we do reach, we're able to provide this really critical information about uh, isolation. We, we try to quickly gather their, their contacts um, and ensure that we get their contacts into quarantine. Um, but I will say at this point in time, it, it, we are looking at a lot of ways to be more efficient. We're trying to automate different parts of this. Um, we're pushing out information in various ways um, and, and really taking a fresh look at the entire model. And, and you know, how do we continue to live with COVID and how do we continue operating here um, in the Department of Health without exhausting our teams? And um, I think that slowly over time, we'll probably see a shift in, we're gonna to continue to see a shift in strategy. Um, and I'm not sure if that completely answers your question. So maybe I'll pause and see, and then I can pull up those numbers. Usually Secretary Scrace, you're quicker than me <laughs> at finding the numbers. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think they're in the 36 to 48 hour range right now. I, uh, I actually, might be able to find them. I'm still pestering Katrina Hodrum Lopez to send me the nursing home deck, but uh, I'm not getting that. So I could I could look for that instead. Okay, Matt, next. Yep. Um, and Secretary Grace, I did I did send you uh, some different LTC numbers that you may be able to look at um, in the meantime. So Perfect. next, we'll turn to Susan Montoya Bryan because she hasn't had a chance to ask a question. And then, and following her, we'll turn to Julia Goldberg once again. Susan, you are unmuted. Thanks, Matt, and thanks for taking our questions today. This is Susan with the Associated Press. I know the governor did say earlier that uh, fully vaccinated means three doses. So assuming that the MAT team ends up going with that and changing the definition, how soon do you think we could see a updated public health order that would mandate, say, state workers, healthcare workers, educators to get that booster shot to keep their jobs? Thank you. Great question. Um, and I, you know, uh, so one, just it's technical and I know you, you weren't splitting hairs. That's fine, but we're not saying everybody has to get a booster. It's just, it would be anyone more than six months out from their primary series. So the people that were sort of got their vaccine at the last minute to keep their jobs, they're all going to be good for six months if they got a Pfizer Moderna or two months if they got that, the J and J. So just to get that on the table, I'm thinking you know, unfortunately, we've just executed, we renewed on the 12th, the mask mandate. And today I signed uh, uh, one dealing with a couple other public health issues, but I think it is our intention in the next public health order. So I would, uh, um, I would guess two to four weeks maximum for that. Uh, I think we still have to look over uh, the evidence, but we're in the process of that. And on a 
timeline to do it. I've talked about it with the governor a couple of times in the past week. And so I think, you know, I think one thing that's important that I thought was really striking is as soon as the booster became available, healthcare workers just swarmed, you know, in to get the vaccine. That's a really important piece of information. You know, I, I got in line I, uh, uh, right away as a healthcare worker. And it's not like they're selfish and they don't want to get COVID. They don't want to pass COVID onto their patients and they want to be safe and they care about their patients and their patients' health. Uh, so anyway, uh, I think we're in a good, um, I think the science is evolving. I think it's generally clear with uh, waning immunity we're seeing that uh, to help control the spread of the virus, we all need to be fully vaccinated. And that understanding changes. And so um, I think the answer to your question is two to four weeks. Great. Next, we'll turn to Julia Goldberg. Julia, you are unmuted. Thanks, Matt. Julia Goldberg, Santa Fe reporter. Um, Dr. Scrace, I wanted to ask you, I was reading a report, I think, from the Kaiser Foundation about um, how increasing numbers of health insurance companies are no longer, uh, they no longer have the waivers for people who are being hospitalized with COVID. And I'm just wondering with our rising cases, as well as the data you've shown throughout about um, sort of poverty level, um, how hospitalizations among people in poverty level, I'm just wondering kind of what the uh, financial impact is you might be anticipating from increasing cases, particularly among the unvaccinated, as I understand, I haven't read through all the policies, I've only got my hands on two, but I understand for some of them, some of them, actually, the lack of waivers for co-pays and stuff are being tied to vaccination uh, status. That That's the end of my sentence, but I can repeat okay. it if it didn't make sense. You know, I think, I think that if you look at the, you know, I, I, I'm very familiar with this with Medicaid data, the cost of COVID month to month is the epidemiology curve. I mean, a little more accurate would be the hospitalization curve, but the case curves themselves drive testing, uh, you know, doctor visits, evaluations, hospitalizations, treatments, monoclonal antibodies. Uh, and so all of those things are driven really by the case counts. And so, yeah, I think it's gonna be really expensive. I know, uh, I know that insurers are saying, I think I think the philosophical position might be, look, if you're not going to get vaccinated, we're not going to just provide unlimited coverage for you. I used to be the CEO of an insurance company, and that's going to be a tricky thing for them to administer. So I, I think we'll see that progress on that or attempts to put the bill on people who are unvaccinated will move more slowly than, than you might think because... Uh, the insurance companies are, it's hard to prove non-vaccination, right? Unless you require everyone to prove vaccination for everything. And so in any case, uh, I'm not really sure how that's going to play out, but I think it's really interesting too. Thank you. All right. I do see one question in the Q&A, so I'm just going to ask it out loud on behalf of the reporter. New Mexico is one of the few states requiring children involved in high school sports to wear masks indoors. NCAA basketball and other sports, along with nearly all the other states, did not require masking during play last season. Is there any evidence that such competitive sports are a significant vector of transmission? 
that requires this as a mitigation measure. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah, I think this is a perfect example of picking out two little pieces of something and comparing them. Like NCAA sports, if you're a basketball player, you get a lot of swabs up your nose, a lot of swabs up your nose, you know, three times a week. I mean, I know, uh, I don't know details of most colleges, but I know UNM tests their athletes three times a week. And so, um, so th and there is really good evidence that if you test your athletes three times a week, you can identify people early, you can isolate them and reduce the spread of COVID. But yeah, there's, there's good evidence that, as a matter of fact, there was an outbreak, like there was a, a school in Albuquerque that I'm also familiar with, a high school, where everyone on one of the women's teams, it was either volleyball or act, uh, volleyball or uh, basketball, developed really, really bad allergies. I think it was January or February, and 19 of them had COVID, and they were practicing indoors and playing indoors and and the like. So there's there's absolutely excellent evidence that close contact, indoor spaces, heavy breathing, sweat, you know, all of those things contribute to spread. I don't know, Christine, have I, have I sufficiently stated it or do you wanna say, uh, say something more? No, I think you sufficiently stated. I'd also say, um, you know, the NCAA basketball players, I, I don't know what their vaccination coverage is, but I suspect it's, it's fairly high. <laughs> so there was a long time, right, where children were not eligible for vaccination. Now they are, and we're slowly seeing a nice uptake in coverage in that 12 to 17, but we still have a long way to go. Uh, so, uh, and yes, there's, there's lots of outbreak data on uh, high contact sports, uh, sports played indoors, uh, so any any additional measure to, to, to mitigate the spread, I, I think is it, it's it's well founded. Thanks. Uh, so I don't see any hands. I'll just give it another couple of seconds here if anybody would like to raise a hand once again for a final round of questions. Seeing none, I'll turn it back to our panelists. Let's go in the order of uh, Dr. Ross, Dr. Potterhone, and Dr. Screes for final comments before we wrap up today. I think we've we've run uh, uh, fairly long today, so I'll just say thank you for inviting me uh, to to the press conference and for all these wonderful questions. Uh, I'm always impressed by the questions that we get, and if there was anything that we didn't answer sufficiently, I'm always happy to provide some information uh, uh, via email or a phone call. Uh, so please uh, uh, reach out. And I want to say I'm looking forward to the holidays. I think that we are in a different place with with uh, with uh, um, the availability of vaccines. And I think that we can uh, celebrate in a safe way. And, and so I, I wanna wish you all a happy holiday if we, if we don't meet next week. So thank you, stay safe. Um, yeah, I just wanna echo what uh, Christine said too. Yeah, have a happy holiday, be safe and um, just great opportunity to vaccinate our kids um, for being newly vaccinated. And, and I, I love the layers. I love the Swiss cheese layers of how we can, as a community, keep on working together to, to beat this pandemic. So thank you so much for, once again, your questions, awesome questions, and um, all you're doing to as journalists to, 
to keep this um, to keep us safe. So, uh, thank you. A couple things on a lighter note. Uh, last year, I mentioned in passing uh, my green chili pino nut turkey stuffing, and uh, somebody picked it up and published my recipe online, and then a whole bunch of people made it. And they really, really, really liked it. So, Matt, if we can uh, get that link out, I'm not going to be selling a cookbook in the future. So this is just more to celebrate Thanksgiving, New Mexico style, putting green chili in just another place you might not have thought to put it uh, before. And then I would say, too, that, you know, uh, Thanksgiving is a time when we're together with our families and, you know, being careful to avoid spread is really important. But one of the ways we can really care for each other is to be really deeply concerned about the health of our family members. And, you know, no one uh, wants to see, no one wants to lose a grandparent or a parent. And, and you know, it's a time to talk about, hey, mom or grandma, have you been to the doctor? Have you, have you seen your doctor? Are you, you know, are you um, being really safe? Are you wearing your mask when you go out? particularly for the vulnerable elderly that many of you reporters have, have brought up today. So as one of the ways of kind of countering the increased risk of all getting together for um, Thanksgiving, I'm just going to ask for that we all kind of make a commitment to an increased level of kindness and concern and caring for our older relatives that we meet with. Let's make sure they're, you know, getting the care they need. If you can talk them into getting vaccinated, you know, I'll, I'll send you, you know, a thank you note, uh, whatever you want to do. But I, I feel like we're, uh, it is a time to remember and be thankful. I'm really thankful for uh, everybody at the Department of Health, Human Services, and state government. In fact, all of state government has worked so hard over the past couple of years to manage the pandemic. I'm really, really thankful for all our healthcare workers who, as you and we have pointed out, are completely exhausted and, and, uh, and so uh, it's just been a long, long road. It isn't over yet. We have tools this year we didn't have last year. We've got medications you can take to avoid hospitalization we didn't have last year. I'm really thankful for that. And I'm just thankful for every New Mexican every single time they get 13 feet outside their house, realize they don't have their mask, go back in and get it put it on and go out and uh, do what they're going to do. Because in so doing that, you're keeping everyone safe, not just yourself. So um, we, in all likelihood, uh, will probably not have a press briefing next week due to Thanksgiving week. And uh, so a happy Thanksgiving to all of you from all of us, uh, to your family, from our state government family, uh, and do something nice for a healthcare worker in your family on Thanksgiving this year. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thanks, Dr. Scrace. Thanks to all our panelists. And thanks for uh, meeting with us once again, Press Corps. Uh, have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon.